Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Good morning, everybody. My name again is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm currently pastoring in New York City. And before you blame Sean for bringing somebody from a foreign land to your church, I grew up in Alabama, and you'll know that shortly, (laughs) the accent. But I did marry a local, so maybe that allows me. She's a UT grad, and my son uh, graduated in 2016. It's how I got to know Redeemer. My son went here when he was in school, and so when we came to visit him, we would come to Redeemer, and we fell in love with the church so much that when we thought about where in the country we wanted to retire, it was going to be here in Knoxville. We bought a a condo up on Cherokee Bluff, so we come back often, and when we do, we're here with you. We love the church. We love its mission to Urban University uh, community. We think that's uh, where God is really moving, and we love being a part of that. We also love uh, Sean. Sean is, uh, in the PCA, we're not really known for artistic preachers, and Sean happens to be one of them. So it, it's a delight. He's one of my very favorite preachers to listen to because he doesn't just give us the content which we are known for, but he does it in such a beautiful way that it's easy and uh, wonderful to listen to. And so you have a treat having Sean Slate here uh, as a pastor. And you already know that, but I just wanted to affirm it. So if you have your Bible with you, Or if you want to follow along in the worship guide, we're going to read from the same text. It's Acts 8, uh, 1 through 8. If you just want to sit there and and listen to me, read it. That is okay too. But please understand, it is the word of the Lord, and so I read. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they had heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy 
in that city. This is the word of the Lord. When I uh, was young, uh, I took art class. That's the closest I'm going to get to being an artist. But they forced all of us into art class. And, and it's because we got a kelm that we were making something from uh, pottery, clay. And so I made and fashioned this bowl with some grooves on the bowl. We fired it up, glazed it, painted it, and I brought it home to my father because it was a gift to him. And I gave it to my dad and my dad said, Bruce, what is it? It's an ashtray, dad. He laughed because it did not look like an ashtray. It pretty much didn't look like anything that is usable. But knowing what it's for, helps us understand its purpose. That is, if we can get our minds around what it's for, then it, it can be understood. And that's the way the church is. If we knew what the church was for, then we could appreciate the church better. That is, we could not just have joy in it, but also participate in its purpose. And a lot of people, if you ask the question, what's the purpose of the church? They'll say, hey, it's a, an organization that you belong to. And therefore, its purpose is a place to belong. That is, it has members, it has leaders, it has meetings, it has a budget, it has activities. It's an organization, and therefore, it's a place to belong, like every other organization in town. And the church is an organization, so don't hear me say that it's not. Some will say it's an organism. It's a community of people who share beliefs together. And so we're a community that shares life. We do life together. So one sense it's an organization. In another sense it's an organism. But the truth is it's more than that. That is the church has a purpose. And the church's purpose is to be a worldwide cosmic movement of the gospel about Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The church's purpose is a worldwide cosmic movement of the gospel about Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came, he lived on earth in our place as if we had lived his life. That's been accounted to us. So what he did, his goodness was transferred to us. He died the death that we should have died. That is, he went to a cross to pay for sins that we committed in our place. He rose from the dead as proof that the Father accepted that sacrifice on our behalf. And he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning from heaven over earth. So if that's the gospel, the church's purpose is to take that message to the whole world. And it's cosmic because you and I have, as part of the understanding of Christ's return, that he's going to make all things new. That Jesus died on the cross not simply to save souls, but to make all things new. And so that's the message that we proclaim. And when people hear that, they believe and they enter into this kingdom. That's the movement. It's worldwide. It's cosmic, and it's about Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Have you taken a moment and thought, why are you here? Not just simply to sing some songs, to hear a good message, 
But literally, as we participate, as we become part of the church, we are part of a worldwide cosmic movement in, the wor- in this world. That's what we're doing as a church. And Redeemer is part of that. In fact, Redeemer is not just part of it, it's fruit of it. That is, we participate in it, but the very fact that we're here is the result of it. And so, I'll break this passage up. It should be a little easy to remember because they're all going to be P's. And so, the first uh, section will be the church planted. And then we'll look at the church persecuted. And then lastly, the church is purposed. So it's planted, persecuted, and purposed. And, and just like the rest of Acts, in most cases, the book of Acts is descriptive of what happened, not prescriptive that it will happen or that it must happen. So what I'm trying to say is that this is not prescriptive of how a church operates. It is it's first planted, and then it's persecuted, and then it's purpose. But the church, big C, This is how it became part of this worldwide movement of the gospel about Jesus Christ. God planted it. It was persecuted because it represented God on earth as it proclaimed the gospel about Jesus Christ. And then because it was persecuted, it was scattered. And as it was scattered, it it, it became purposed to proclaim that message of the gospel. All right, with that in mind, let's first look at the church planted. First verse, and Saul approved of his execution. He's talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So first of all, let's identify the church. In when Acts 8 is written, when... when the time in which it's talking about, there was only one local church. There wasn't a church in every city. There was just a church in Jerusalem. And to the best of our understanding, it had about 500 members and about 11 leaders, the apostles. That is, it wasn't yet a worldwide cosmic movement. It just simply was a local church. And though you and I probably would have named it First Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem or Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Jerusalem, they called it the church in Jerusalem because there wasn't another one they had to distinguish after. You don't need a first and a second if there's only one. And so it's called the church in Jerusalem. And so one of the things that you noticed is that it's all local right there. It's not yet part of the movement. And so we have to ask the question, why did they stay in Jerusalem? You see, they were told by Jesus that they were going to preach the gospel to the whole world. They were commanded, they were instructed that take this message of the gospel about Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and preach that to every part of the world. And yet they were still in Jerusalem by the time we get to chapter 8. They're still there. About 511 people, give or take. They were told at the beginning, before Jesus ascends into heaven, you, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. Beginning in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, to the remotest part of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses of the gospel about Jesus Christ to the world. And yet, 
We find him in chapter 8, still in Jerusalem, still gathering together just outside the temple to hear preaching. So why did they stay? They stayed because there were some pretty amazing things going on in that local church, the only church. One of the things we get from Acts 2 is Peter gets up to preach. We don't know how many were in the crowd, but we know 3,000 of the people that listened to him that day believed the gospel about Jesus Christ and joined that church. So at one time of preaching the gospel, he had uh, 3,000 people convert to the faith. Great. That's a, that's a great beginning of a church. You go from 500 to a, a 3,500. But we know from Acts 4, just a couple of chapters over, Peter gets up to preach again. And it says 5,000 people heard him that day, believed the gospel about Jesus Christ, and joined that local church. So however amount of time it is from Acts 2 to Acts 4, the church grows from about 511 people uh, to 8,511 people. And, and most say that's pretty conservative because often Jews, when they did counting, didn't count women and children. So it could have been much larger than that by two sermons. Amazing feat. You can imagine if you were in the crowd and you were seeing not only this in, incredible preaching, but also all these converts, and then on top of it, you saw them healing blind people, and they had sight. Or one of your cousins had come, and he was lame, but now he walks. Or someone who had been deaf from birth now hears. And, and it's a, an amazing event that people were excited about. You and I would have done the very same thing. If that was going on, not only would we stay, but people would move here to join us to see it happening. And that's exactly what was happening. And so the answer to the question is, why did they stay? It was an amazing activity of the movement of the Holy Spirit in that church at that time. But we've got to admit, it's not like that here. It's not like that in the United States right now. There was a time in 1776... 15% of America went to church of any kind. We always kind of tend to look back and read back into history, something that wasn't there, that this was some big uh, Christian experiment. And the reality is only about 15% went to church of any kind. Then comes the first and second great awakening, and the church moves from about 15% to about 50% of people attending church. The height of church attendance is in the 1950s when we had about 60 some odd percent attend church. In 1960, 97% of Americans believed in God, according to Gallup. Gallup does this survey every year, and now 81%. That's a, that's a pretty big dip, believe in God. Almost 90% self-described as Christians in 19. Uh, 60, 64% today would call themselves a Christian in the United States. Today, the fastest growing self-designation, when Gallup does this survey every year, they added a category about 25 years ago. So they've only been measuring it for the last 25 years. And when they say uh, Christian, uh, Muslim, all the other different faiths, they get down to the bottom and none. The fastest growing self-designation in America today is not Christian. It's none. I have no faith. 
I belong to no religion. That's the fastest growing, and particularly among young people, in the United States, under the age of 30, 40% self-describe as none. Everything is changing. We've become more secular, more pluralistic, which means anything goes, more skeptical, more cynical about everything. And what does that mean for the American church? Well, I read a book, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you some dollars so you don't have to buy the book, but it has two principles that he teaches that is worth the whole book. The two principles are this. The writer, his name is uh, Todd Bollinger. He wrote the book, Canoeing the Mountain, to describe where the American church is today and where we need to go as part of this gospel movement in our country. And he's, he says, every... Uh, explorer up until 1804 thought two things about the United States. You see, he takes the story of Lewis and Clark expedition of 1804, and that becomes the metaphor of where we are today. And he says, uh, every explorer up to 1804 thought that there was a way from the Columbia uh, 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 River to um, uh, the Pacific Ocean. That there was a northwest passage through the Rocky Mountains that were connected by waterways. And so all they needed were canoes. So they found 40 men who were great canoers. They were all explorers. They got into these canoes close to St. Louis, Missouri and and traveled on the Missouri River to the Columbia River towards the Rockies. Thinking there was a northwest passage. Well, as they got closer and closer to to the mountains... They were noticing a couple of things. The river was getting narrower and shallower. Because, as you know, the, the Missouri River runs out at the Rockies. It doesn't go on to the Columbia River, to the Pacific Ocean, like they thought. And so, he says that the American church is like that. That is, things that we used to do in the 1950s and 60s, really reached a lot of people. We were answering the questions of our generation, was asking, and people were coming to faith. But as time goes on, as we become more secular, more postmodern, more pluralistic, more cynical, though we're not asking the questions that this generation is asking. We're not answering them. And so we're missing them. And so fewer and fewer people are being reached by these older methods that we used. And so just as the explorers, Lewis and Clark, had to turn to these 40 men and say, okay, we have to get out of our canoes. We're running out of water. doesn't mean we're out of water, but we're running out. We've got to become mountain climbers. We Americans in the church, as part of this movement, need to understand our culture better, need to know the questions that our culture is asking and show the biblical answers, the gospel answers to those questions so that they can understand them. You see, Tim Keller says this. He said in one of his books uh, 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 on apologetics, he says that our generation or every generation of Christians tends to answer the questions of the previous generation as if the current generation is still asking those questions. Let me give you an example. There was a time that you could talk a lot about death and people's ears would perk up. People would want to know what happens after we die. 
Where do we go? How do you get there? What is eternal life? Who is Jesus as a means to that? Because the life expectancy 100 years ago is about 57 years old. And about 150 years ago, it was 37 years old. And so what does that tell you? That we all knew people who were dying. That the infant mortality rate was so high that if you had five children, you're guaranteed two of them would be dead before adulthood. And so death was constantly before people. So much so that a, 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 a preacher named Jonathan Edwards could write a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God where he talks about God holding you over a fire and could release you at any moment, cause people listening to him to shout out what must we do to be saved. And can you imagine, as quiet as this room, that the point that, that, that the preacher gets to the gospel, someone actually says, what must I do to be saved? That's what was going on because death was so much part of their world. But in our world, where we're living so much longer, more healthy than we did in the past, and then when someone does get sick and is about to die, we tend to move them away from us instead of back into our home. Almost everybody before the 20th century died at home. The average person died at home. Rarely does that happen anymore in a hospital, in, in some kind of hospice care. And so asking questions about death just isn't on, on our front burner. What are the questions of today? How do I get happiness? What is success? How do I get security in this world? Where is, uh, where is the place that I can go and be accepted and loved for who I am? Those are questions that people ask today that the church needs to have answers to. And there are. The Bible has so many answers to those questions of every generation because it was written uh, by the Spirit. They would be able to know that long before you got here, the questions of every age. The second thing that Bollinger points out in his book, Canoeing the Mountain, that every explorer thought of until 1804 is that the land west of the Rockies was exactly like the land east of the Rockies. That is, people grew up on the East Coast. They thought that as soon as they got over the mountains, it'd be just like it was. And it wasn't. It was rocky. It, it, it had big, tall trees. It had forests. Things that they had not seen as they were getting close to the Rocky Mountains. And they needed guides. They needed someone to show them how to get where they wanted to go. And so they found a young woman who had married a Canadian trader named Sachuia. And she showed them around and how to forage for food and what's good food to eat and what's not good food and how to get to the Columbia River that ultimately got them uh, to the Pacific Ocean. Who is that for us today? It used to be that when we wanted to do missions, we took people from our churches and said, here's the methods that work here. Go do them over there. It's one of the reasons that you can go to churches all over the world and they worship the way we worship. They sing the songs. If it wasn't for the language, it would be exactly the same. Why? Because our missionaries took what they had learned here and took it over there. And now... We need our missionaries to tell us what's working, 
how to reach more secular places than here in the United States. Places like Berlin and London and Paris, places that are far more secular. Our missionaries, which were conveyors of our methods that used to work, now need to come home and tell us what is working for this age. Those are kind of the two principles that they had. So one of the things I want you to note is, is that they're, they were supposed to go to the world as a movement, but they failed to go. And so as a result, God used uh, two men, specifically uh, Stephen and Saul, to bring out a persecution upon the church that ultimately ended up the scattering of the church, which is what they were supposed to do in the first place. Look at verse 2. Devout men uh, buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravishing the church and entering house after house. He dragged the men off and the women and committed them to prison. Two men motivated and were shaped uh, the church into a movement out of Jerusalem into the world. One was Stephen, one was Saul. Stephen uh, was one of the original uh, deacons in the church back in Acts 6. The apostles were devoting themselves to the word and prayer, but they were also feeding the poor. They were also particularly uh, widows, both those from a Jew, uh, Hebrew background and those that were from a Greek background. And there was a complaint that rose up in the church that they were giving uh, more attention to the Hebrew uh, uh, widows than they were to the Greek widows. And so they appointed uh, deacons. And one of them happens to be Stephen. And he had a beautiful uh, deed ministry, but he also had a word ministry. That is, Stephen preached the gospel. He was so captivated by what God had done for him through Jesus Christ. He couldn't keep it to himself. He kept telling everybody about that. And so he would preach the gospel. And People were coming to faith, and because of that, the Jewish leaders in town in Jerusalem and the Roman leaders, they didn't like this, and so they arrested him, and then they executed him. And it is because of his execution that a young man stood there, a guy named Saul. He's going to later become Paul, but right now he's just Saul. He's a zealot for the faith, and it says in my text in verse 1 that he approved, but the word there is not really as biting as it could be. The word there is that he delighted in. Saul delighted in the execution of Stephen to the point where Saul said, this is a, a job I can do. You know, some people are given a job and some people recognize a need and they create a job. That's Saul. Saul became the leader of the persecution of Christians there in Jerusalem. And so he led a mob uh, to go house to house arresting people who professed faith in Jesus Christ and put them into prison. We know from history that they didn't just do that. They didn't just put you into prison and then let you out. Often you languished there and died. Others they killed. And a few, they took their children and gave them away because they didn't want them to be raised by Christians because they believed that if you could kill off the preachers, if you could kill off the leaders, the movement would die. That's one of the reasons they executed Jesus is that they thought if they could get rid of Jesus, there would be no followers. And instead, and in both cases, it created more followers. To the point where that's what's happening here. Is that as people saw Stephen be executed, it motivated them to take this gospel that he was preaching to others. There's a, 
book that we used to read as a, there were, in, when my kids were growing up, there weren't a lot of great devo- family devotionals. So I, I read them Fox's Book of Martyrs, the old one that had the whole ar- hard, difficult, archaic words that we don't use, but they loved it because uh, there's some really crazy things that happen in there. And one of them is the story of Hugh Latimer and, uh, and uh, uh, Ridley. And uh, these, Nicholas Ridley, these two uh, stalwarts of the faith, they were both bishops. They're part of the Oxford martyrs. They, they don't want to preach the gospel that the queen wanted. And so they uh, were burned at the stake there in Oxford. You can still see the monument to the Oxford martyrs. And there's way more than these two. While they're being burnt, the first thing that uh, uh, Latimer says to Ridley to encourage him, he says, play the man. Mr. Ridley, today, by God's grace, a candle will be lit that will never be extinguished. While while these two men are burning, Thomas Cramner, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, is watching. And just previously had recanted it and said, yes, I will preach this false gospel. He changes his mind because he's steeled by watching these two friends of his burn at the stake and hear this beautiful encouragement play the man by God's grace the candle we light will never be extinguished and so he recants his recantation the the religious leader says you can't do that he says yes I must and I must join my friends and so they burn Thomas Cramner at the stake and when Cramner is being burnt he, take, he asked them not to tie his hands so that he could take his right hand that he had signed his recantation and burn it off. And then he died. What did that do? It started the English Reformation, which leads to you being here today. If those men had not done that, there would have been no missionaries that came to the United States. That's 1555. We are the fruit of the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not just being asked to be part of it. We are the fruit of it. They're fulfilling a prophecy by the fourth century theologian, Tertullian, who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church moves because that motivates us, that if they can do that, how can I not? proclaim the gospel that has set me free that's the beauty in verse 4 it says that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went so as they're being persecuted they're being scattered and as the scattered ones are scattered they scatter the gospel where they go and so let me handle two quick uh, objections that people have about Christians evangelizing their faith, sharing their faith with others. One is from outside the church and one comes from within the church. The outside objection is simply, you Christians, that's a private thing. You keep that to yourself. It's okay for you to believe, but don't tell anybody else about it. Don't bring it into the public square because in the public square, it's not supposed to have faith. This is where facts, this is where other things are debated, but not your faith. I just want to tell you this morning, that's not intellectually honest. If you believe something to be true, for you not to bring it into the public square for debate is dishonest. That's what uh, 
Penn Gilead. Said Penn is a partner uh, with um, uh, Teller. They're a comedian act, and Penn's a famous atheist. And they interviewed him. You can check it out on YouTube. They interview him about Christians. He's not a Christian, not particularly in love with Christianity because he doesn't believe in God. And, and so they asked him, is it okay? Do you, do you wish that Christians wouldn't share their faith? And this is what he said. I don't respect people who don't proselytize. That's his word for evangelism. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell and you think it's not really worth telling them, because it will make it socially awkward for you? How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about salvation? He goes on and says, how much do you have to hate someone to believe in everlasting life as possible and not tell them it can be for them? Imagine you've got the cure to cancer and you keep it to yourself. You have the most explosive message in history that God left his throne in heaven and came to earth to make all things new that have been ruined by sin. How can we not tell someone? The second objection comes from inside the church and it's simply this. If God is going to save whoever he wants regardless of what we do, then why evangelize? You've heard different versions of that. If, if God has elected everybody who's going to be saved, then why should we do evangelism? Why should we be involved in the movement? Because he's going to do it anyway. I think it's a failure to know the scriptures. One of the scriptures that answers this question is Paul's asked this or anticipates this very question in Romans 10. And he says this, everyone, this is my favorite Presbyterian verse, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say those who uh, grow up in the South. It's not just those who go to Presbyterian churches. It's not just those who uh, uh, are involved in Christian groups on campus. It says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he begins to ask a series of questions. How will they call upon the name of the Lord in whom they've never believed? How will they believe if they do not hear? How will they hear if... No one preaches. And how will someone preach unless they are sent? Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Do you hear what Paul's doing? He is saying that yes, on the one hand, God is in charge of this movement. It's his movement of the gospel about Jesus Christ. But my means by which that happens is that someone shares the gospel with someone who doesn't know. Do you hear that? He's, he has decided in his infinite wisdom to hook the gospel to how someone believes. And so it is impossible. That is, you can go to the Grand Canyon, you can go up into the Smoky Mountains, and you would still not know what Christ has done for you. Only if we tell them about what Jesus loved for them and to the extent he went, go. But Bruce... How about all the people who uh, have been elect? I love Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a great 19th century uh, uh, preacher. He's called the Prince of Preachers. And someone asked him as an incredibly reformed guy who believed in uh, God's sovereignty and salvation. They asked him, then why do you do evangelism? Why do you go and talk to non-believers? 
And he says this. He says, look, Jesus says, I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm, the, I'm at the beginning and I'm at the end. It's very interesting. Those are all in the present tense in Revelation. What he's saying is, this kind of blows our mind because you and I are in time. Time was created for humanity, not for God. He lives outside of it, invades time. He says that God simultaneously is at the beginning of time and at the end of time and every point of time in between. And so when I meet a lost person, someone who doesn't know what Jesus has done for them, then I pray to God that he would elect the more because God is at before the foundation of the world right now doing all of his electing. So I, as a Presbyterian, well, in his case, he was a Reformed Baptist, he, he, someone who believes in election, I can pray to a God who's at the beginning, even though I'm in the middle, in order that people might be saved. And so when I share the gospel, I have the full assurance that God could have elected them before the foundation of the world because that's where he is. And so the church is finally purpose. Now those, verse 4, who were scattered, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So that there was much joy in that city. First of all, who stayed and who left? It's kind of... Uh, different than we would have anticipated, the lay people are the ones who left town. It was the regular members of the church left and the apostles, the leadership stayed. It doesn't mean that every member left town. There were some people who stayed behind. But the thought today is that when you talk about sharing the faith, we're going to leave that to the professionals. And we as individual members of the church, uh, we're just here to support them. We'll pray for them. We'll encourage them. But they do the work. But that's not what Jesus said. In Matthew 18, uh, 28, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. For lo, I'm with you always to the end of the earth. So he's saying, as you go about your life, wherever I place you, wherever I plant you, wherever you are, take the gospel and proclaim it. That's the, that's the means by which this movement moves. And the truth is, we can move, we can live our lives, and never be part of the movement of the gospel about Jesus Christ. It's one of the saddest things in the world about our faith, that we can be the fruit of the movement without ever entering the movement ourselves. And it's true that this movement is bigger than any one church, bigger than Redeemer, strategic church in an urban university setting, reaching lots of people that are here in our city, but the truth is, Redeemer cannot do it alone. We need everyone. We should want everyone who believes in Jesus Christ to be part of the movement. There are no small roles in this movement. You and I used to quibble so much about our differences. But you and I can no longer afford the quibbling over our differences. 
we need to celebrate our unity around the gospel and the movement of that gospel. It's why Jesus said the, the laborers are few, but the harvest is plentiful. So what's the result? You see it in verse eight, great joy in that city. First, he's talking about our joy, our joy in the gospel that has saved us. That Jesus Christ didn't just come to do this to be an inspiration to us. He came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Rose again to prove that it was acceptable. In fact, when the early church wanted to do its best apologetic, it was not about some uh, big idea from Thomas Aquinas. It was he died and he rose again and 500 people saw him and you can go ask them yourself. That's what they did. But secondly, it's not only our personal joy in the gospel, but we also have joy in seeing the good of our city. We look at our city and there's so many good things to commend about it. My son went to UT when it was not the best of times, 2012, 2016. Those weren't, if you were a football fan, they weren't really that great. And so he was tired of hearing his mom talk about all the great championships that she saw. Now he gets to feel them. What a wonderful experience for us. Do you see the good things of our city and are you taking joy in them? But it's not just seeing the good, but it is also seeing the brokenness and seeking its healing. We get to participate. It won't be perfectly healed by the time uh, Christ comes. We have the hope that what we do is an appetizer for what is to come. You know what an appetizer is? You know, today, restaurants have ruined appetizers. You go to a restaurant and they have the starter menu. That used to be the appetizer menu. And if you order something off the starters, it might as well be a whole meal. And you see people doing it. They'll order two or three of those and that's their meal. They're not going on down to the entrees. Appetizers are supposed to be that four pieces of shrimp, those little ones, with a little bit of cocktail sauce. It was supposed to be an awakening of the soul for more and that's what the, we the church get to do we get to be the four pieces of shrimp and cocktail in this world we awaken the soul to more hunger for Jesus that's who we are I love the end of Les Mis and it's the right before they go to the big war scene and everybody is wishing for one day more and so they have this big song where different parts of the play are singing out one day more because they all want one day more one more day of a of a relationship one more day of uh of glory and then there's the one more day before the battle and, and so this question is before the house one day more before the storm at the barricades of freedom shall i join my brothers there when our ranks begin to form do i stay or do i dare Will you take your place with me? The time is now. The day is here. Where does our motivation come from? To enter into this worldwide cosmic movement of the gospel about Jesus Christ? It does not come from guilt. If you feel guilty because you're not in, that's a terrible motivation because it won't last Secondly, it can't be from personal achievement, some kind of a Christian notch in your belt for success. It can't be that you've led 10 to Christ and somebody else has led five to Christ. 
It's not from a, even a burden for the lostness of our world that will never keep you engaged in the movement because it's hard. But there is one motivation. Motivated by his love for you. Jesus' love for you. Most quoted verse in the entire Bible. It's so known that we can put it on a card and just say 316 and people know what it is. For God so loved, he gave. For God so loved you, he gave his only son. That if you believe in him, you have eternal life. Which is the point of the table this morning. It's first and foremost a declaration and a proclamation of his love for you. And to the extent he went to demonstrate that love. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still his enemy. He died for us. 